Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights, and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. I'm relatively hopeful. I, I think there are more uh, impact funds being formed. I think there is a growing consciousness amongst what we would call asset owners. These are high net worth individuals or family foundations as to connecting money with meaning. I think that the pathways are becoming better defined in terms of how to jump in. We can talk about that maybe a little later. Uh, and, and I think that the tools that are you know, becoming available to investors as it relates to the best way to invest in social enterprises or to invest in impact uh, are continuing to improve. I think that some of these um, structured exit financings are in fact a way of both reducing risk and I was speaking about this uh, at the Journal of Investment Management in Chicago uh, a week ago. Uh, and it is a way of um, encouraging the right kind of uh, focus on cash flow and sustainability that these companies r really need to concentrate on in order to become, as we said earlier, persistent. I'm very pleased today to introduce John Kohler. John is a former business executive and venture capital investor now focusing on social innovation and impact investing. He's an executive fellow at Santa Clara University's Center for Science, Technology and Society, and also a mentor to social entrepreneurs at the Global Social Benefit Incubator. John is also a co-founder of Tonic, a syndication network of impact investors committed to leveraging capital in service to systemic social change. Thank you very much, John, for taking the time to speak to me today, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, getting uh, your insights and uh, learning about the uh, state of funding uh, for social entrepreneurs and social innovators in America. Well, you're very welcome. Happy to be on. Great. Right. So you, I know, uh, have been involved in uh, this world for uh, a little time and you're involved in uh, a number of different capacities. You wear different hats. Can you tell me a little bit about how you became involved in the whole world of social entrepreneurship and uh, what you do at the moment? Sure. Well, um, I began actually as I exited a career of uh, technology executive, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist in the technology business here in Silicon Valley. Uh, and that was about 10 years ago, and I started becoming um, more interested in being a mentor to social enterprises that were part of the programming that Miller Center was doing, um, before it was even called Miller Center, was doing uh, for entrepreneurs who were starting uh, what we would consider companies uh, or startups that were uh, addressing some of the stubborn problems of poverty uh, around the world. And it was very inspirational, um, both the stories and the, the individuals who I got to interact with. And it was shortly after that that I began um, looking at the capital side of uh, how do we match appropriate businesses with appropriate capital. 
uh, and you know started working here uh, at Miller Center to uh, understand what investors needed, how to build um, the pathways to more capital into the space, and also conversely how to coach uh, entrepreneurs on identifying and, and matching up uh, with with the right kind of capital for their for their business. Can you tell me a little bit about Tonic and what what you do? Well, so I think Tonic, uh, you know, was formed. So I, I'm one of the co-founders there, uh, and, and Tonic was formed uh, for exactly the problem that we have. I mean, if you look at venture capital investing in Silicon Valley, venture capitalists like to invest in companies that are very close to them. They can drive over and talk to the CEO at any time. They syndicate uh, the investments in those companies. Uh, hence risk management for you know lunatic fringe investing. Uh, they syndicate locally, so they're working with people that they've been successful working with before in other funds. And the outcome of the investment is a product or service which has global aspirations, global dominance in mind, and, and, and they want to you know roll that into a, an IPO or some other you know highly valued um, exit strategy. Uh, impact capital is exactly the opposite. So while it uses some similarity or some similar mechanisms as it relates to supporting entrepreneurs to start companies, uh, you're usually investing, if you're going in, into a direct investment, you're investing in companies that are thousands of miles away. You're syndicating with like-minded investors who like both the impact outcome as well as the geography and, and the stage of, of, the, of the startup company who could be anywhere in the world, and that's why Tonic started. And the outcome of the investment is a product or service which is usually local or at best regional in its scope. It's not trying to flip itself into an IPO. There usually aren't IPO opportunities in those markets in the first place. And so it's it's a little different mechanism. And so Tonic was, was kind of a tongue-in-cheek name uh, juxtaposed to gin, where these were smaller investors and smaller funds and some foundations that, that started getting together and wanted to to actually learn by doing and not studying and and syndicate together and do diligence together and cut costs and, and share deal flow because it's very difficult in the the description that I just gave you of impact investing you know, far away, it's very difficult to actually generate quality deal flow, get the resources to do appropriate diligence, to understand the local legal and central bank environments, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, banding together is a good idea. So this was sort of band of angels from Silicon Valley that, that looks at angel investors in tech, and we sort of did the same thing except for impact investing, um, and we called it Tonic. Can you tell me about the size and the range of deal size that you do? So a lot of deals. I don't have the numbers, unfortunately, on my fingertips, but I can tell you that we have a platform and there's generally between 200 and 300 live investment opportunities that have been posted up either by Tonic staff or by Tonic members at any given time. And there are almost weekly calls where people can join in. We have two... Uh, spaces. So because we're a global organization, we, we, we're very much virtually oriented rather than physically oriented in terms of going to a conference room. And so we have these virtual conferences um, that are, whether they're informative or they're a fund that's presenting its investment opportunity or um, it's, it's a direct investment and an entrepreneur who's presenting, we, we are able to, to cross-compare 
and, and do some diligence together on it. And people can signal their interest in following the company. They can signal their interest in investing and syndicating. And it's, it's pretty effective. Great. And what kind of size of deals do you do? Are they, they, they uh, equity investments? Um, are they, have you any, uh, some idea of this kind of range of kind of deals that you, you do in terms of size of uh, investment? Yeah, it tends to be on the smaller end, which Fergal is, is pretty interesting because it's part of what we would otherwise call a missing middle. If you look at some studies, uh, there's you know above 1 million or 2 million in kind of ticket size or investment size for a particular round, you find more appetite. And then at a really low end, you find some of the angel investors. And so our, our investments tend to be sort of in the 100,000 to $1 million range on average. There are um, exceptions, of course, to that, but that generally tends to be the, the investment size that I see a typical tonic deal uh, come through on. Now, I've seen bigger ones. Uh, I don't see a lot of smaller ones than that, but, um, but in general, it's the 100,000 to 1 million, which is exactly where the market needs more actors. We just did a study, uh, or actually, uh, it wasn't so much of a study. It was kind of a desktop research using uh, PitchBook, which is a database for the venture capital industry. But interestingly enough, they do identify impact investors as funds um, and impact investments as, as targets or as done deals, so to speak. So we, we sifted out to only look at the, the social enterprises or impact investments as described in PitchBook. And the same sort of valley of death you know, occurred where you looked at the number of deals and the size of deals over the last five years, uh, uh, and by size, there were a lot of uh, a lot of uh, financings done on the below five hundred thousand. There were a lot of financings done in the um, one million and above, and then there was this about a fifty percent drop off for the space in between four ninety nine and and one million. And so I, I think that that's that's an important area for the for the sector to continue to concentrate on. Um, anecdotally, there's, there are others who have um, written about uh, quite recently the, that this continues to be a problem in terms of crossing the pioneer gap and, and some other terms that have been used for this problem. Right. A lot of money is coming into the impact investment sector. And some of that's clearly looking for what you might call market related returns. Yeah, and on the other hand, many social ventures just, just will never be able to generate those kinds of returns. Many working at the so-called bottom of the pyramid, for example, may make very limited returns, yet have tremendous impact. How much money would you say is available for these kinds of businesses? Hard to say, but I would say that the capital that comes from the majority of asset owners, as I described them earlier, uh, uh, tend to be more impact uh, focused and less absolutely return focused. I would say that the capital that comes or is hoping to come from uh, fund managers or fund advisors who have a um, you know have a traditional investment scope tend to look more to how do we how do they achieve something with market rate return i was just in chicago uh, at the journal of investment management conference the the focus of the conference these are twice a year conferences but the focus of the conference this time was on esg and risk management and there were a number of papers and or uh, presentations given 
about, you know, are we able to have ESG as in the construction of public market portfolios? This is this is environmental, social, and governance um, lenses to to constructing that portfolio. Uh, all of which would have a favorable outcome, obviously not intended to have a negative outcome. Um, but but the concern was, you know, what happens when you do that? Do you sacrifice absolute return? So there's still a lot of, you know, real sensitivity in the traditional money center markets. And, and for those who probably have, a, you know, a, an investment responsibility for an institution uh, to, to match or show that they're not losing um, money because they take a more uh, favorable, sustainable uh, environmental and social outlook uh, to what they choose as investments. I, th I think that that's going to continue to be a problem um, because there's the other side of the thesis from those who are you know, highly bought in to the fact that we cannot sustain the investment philosophy that we've been living with for the last 60 or 70 years, which um, is modern portfolio theory, that that is no longer sustainable. So I hear both sides of the argument, and I would hope that um, we can begin to draw corollaries to what people are doing when they vote their checkbook. I mean, you know, I always like to use a, a couple of um, examples. One example is, you know, the, the Whole Foods is not called Whole Paycheck for, you know, no reason. It, it's an expensive uh, option. And yet people are voting their, their checkbook and Whole Foods has been very successful in bringing sustainable products to market well ahead of their, the, the times, well ahead of what would be called popular or normal uh, in, in that kind of consumer marketplace. Um, the, on the investment side, the example I like to draw is a, a very successful impact fund, double bottom line investors here in San Francisco, and Nancy Fund, P-F-U-N-D, not F-U-N-D, uh, uh, is an effective person, comes out of private equity, is in fact effective investor, but she would describe some of her most successful impact investments as Tesla, Pandora Radio, and Solar City. And I, I guess I get it, you know, so you say Tesla makes electric cars, you know, I get that. But here at Miller Center, we try to look through to whom the ultimate beneficiary is. And if the ultimate beneficiary is the glitterati of Silicon Valley that uh, can afford a $100,000 car, that's not exactly the kind of impact or work that we're trying to drive from this Jesuit institution here in Silicon Valley. We're trying to go to who are the people that need you know, a hand up the most, who are the people who need to be included the most, whose voice uh, is currently unheard and, and should be heard. So these are the kinds of uh, more social and more environmental um, outcomes that we're trying to, to reach. And, and the beneficiaries are usually not people who can afford a $100,000 car. So you know, I guess the point I'm getting to is we have the spectrum of expectations both on a financial side and we have a spectrum of expectations on the impact side. And, um, and I'm not – I wouldn't cast aspersions on some of that spectrum, but I would say that where I see – high net worth individuals, our work, many of the asset owners who are have already entered impact capital and impact investing, and a number of the funds that have formed around it are in fact looking through to who the ultimate beneficiary is and trying to advantage um, some of those markets and environments. And it could be a great opportunity as well. Uh, I just don't want to promise that. Right, right. I know raising money is a constant struggle for many social entrepreneurs. It's a challenging process. 
How well are social entrepreneurs doing making their case, presenting themselves to investors? Have you any advice? Well, so this strikes to the heart of sort of uh, of how we've recasted our work. So the first eight or so years, we were looking at scaling social enterprise. And then about four years ago, we really pushed the pedal down to say, look, what we need to do is not just scale, but to create investment readiness, because uh, that's what's that's part of what's missing. I can go on and on about why that happened and, and some of the dialogue that was going on in the impact investing sector at the time. So what that means in practicality is that we have to coach the entrepreneurs. And this is part of you know, one of the roles that I play here at Miller Center and certainly a key part of, of the programming that we have throughout our programs at Miller Center, which is you have to have a justifiable ask if you're the entrepreneur. So it's a very simple question. It's a very loaded question, but a very simple question I like to ask uh, or, or present to entrepreneurs is, the, does the promise that you feel you need to make to your prospective investor, is that promise one that your business model allows you to keep? So it's understanding their financials. It's understanding what their business model is. It's understanding what their capital needs are. It's understanding how truthful the future forecasts are. And it's understanding the type of capital that they can actually give back. And if they can't return an investment, uh, then they need to seek a grant um, if they or a PRI if they can return part or all of it but not with a risk premium. If they feel like they can get a little bit, maybe they need a soft loan or, or perhaps uh, one of the new uh, structured exit vehicles where they find an, an investor willing to take a return concession in order to drive the impact. They certainly need to understand how to measure the impact that they have. Or if they feel like they got a good uh, exit strategy and that they can create an equity liquidity event, then they can certainly raise equity. And that's the cheapest form of capital because you don't have to pay it back. It doesn't accrue interest, um, but it's, it's an investment built on the promise of a highly increased value over time. So I, I think what we try to do is to, is to um, demystify this whole fundraising sources of capital and organize it in the minds of the entrepreneurs who come through our program. Uh, and if we organize it well enough, not only will they be approaching the right kind of investor, knocking on the right kind of door, but then our, our, the other side of investment readiness is that when you uh, go into that first analyst meeting for two hours, how well do you do? How well are you prepared? What are the questions that that analyst uh, or diligence uh, person, what, are, what questions are they going to ask you and are you prepared to answer them? We do not believe it's um, enough for incubators and accelerators in the impact space to simply prepare their entrepreneurs to make a nice pitch on the, on a, you know, for 10 minutes on a stage. We think that it has to go much further than that so that they shine in that first two-hour meeting. Right. Yeah, you talk about going much further. What, what do you mean? Uh, can you give me some examples? I mean, you've, you've alluded a little bit to it there, but um, there is a lot of talk about pitching, isn't there? I suppose there's an assumption that it's the... Uh, top of the pyramid that there's underneath that there are all these other things that have been covered. But what what why is in what what why why are you saying that it's sometimes inadequate? 
Well, I think it's it's always inadequate. <laughs> you know, if, if the goal, you know, it depends on what the goal is. But if the goal is to raise capital, um, there needs to be a pretty intimate and deep understanding of what is the business model actually delivering over time and what is required to to make not only either growth or outcomes happen, um, but to make that sustainable. So, for, you know, it's everything from unit economics to a good P&L to understanding your organizational development to really identifying not only the total addressable market, but target market uh, or first target markets where your expansions might be. So it's all of the business architecture that would that you would normally see in any business that's doing a startup. Uh, the difference here is is that the exit or maybe the lack of an exit is um, is what we're we're really working with here with some of these uh, frontier economy companies, and that's okay because they can be solid cash flowing businesses that are well uh, supported by their local markets because they're bringing high value to those communities. You can see some of the best social enterprises that way. Conversely, you can also see some of the fastest, our experiences, you can see some of the fastest scaling from an impact delivery standpoint or beneficial outcome delivery standpoint. Some of the fastest scaling organizations are grant supported. They're not for profits. And that's okay too because they deliver wonderful impact in a very important way and they can grow very quickly. You just need to know what you're asking for and why and be able to defend it. And I think that that's three quarters of the battle right there. That's why I think that just being able to do a pitch when the numbers don't actually add up, when you start to look under the covers, is sort of, uh, it's not going far enough. Right, right. That's interesting. And how much of this is about revenues? Um, I mean, right, you've got revenues and costs and so forth, but clearly there is inherent in this the idea that somebody will buy something, somebody will pay for something, and mm -hmm. that there are you know, other people like that. Now, that can be uh, a tricky uh, question for all kinds of entrepreneurs, the, the reality of, you know, how many people are actually going to buy their product. Uh, how is it for social entrepreneurs? Yeah. So um, I think for all entrepreneurs, it's the key question because uh, you shouldn't start your company unless you can find that that uh, that space in the future where you can be self-sustainable. Um, and I'll, I want to maybe tag into some of what I see, some, some interesting trends that have emerged recently. And it, the trends are from what I would call the programmatic world, where there are programmatic responses to poverty, driven a lot by donors, by aid organizations, by development banks, and so on. But they tend to be time-bound insertions of competence or programs uh, in underserved communities around the world in an attempt to be catalytic or an attempt to solve a problem at the time. But there are two to three year grants. They might, you know, help with mining practices. They might help with AIDS uh, um, education. They might help with job creation. They might, you know, there's all kinds of health, last mile health. Um, there's all kinds of, of great programmatic approaches but they're so temporary that they that the local populations, when you travel to these frontier economies, the local populations will tell you that they know that this is kind of a hamster wheel, that this is a program that's here today and it's going to be gone tomorrow and they've got to find something else to rely on. They can't really have a long-term 
reliability on a solution, no matter if the solution is really a, a hit, you know, that really addresses a problem, it's likely it's going to dry up and, and blow away when the financing runs out or the, the grant runs out. So a number of these organizations, um, especially from the INGOs recently, uh, and even from uh, the Catholic Church, who have had something called Catholic Social Ministries, which are essentially businesses or at least business operations, even if not profitable and donor supported in order to keep going, um, to create solutions for the poor in the local parishes, communities, and dioceses that they have. Same thing with INGOs, 60 years of aid from all kinds of countries going into programmatic work and, and especially more and more localized if you look past you know, over the last 20 years in, in, in terms of the emphasis. Um, now they want to move from a programmatic approach to a persistent approach. And what they see is adopting business principles to become self-funded in their growth and self-sustaining in their operations and have a long-term persistent solution to a stubborn problem of poverty is, in fact, a good path to follow. It may not be the best path in all cases, but it's a path that, that people are really starting to adhere to. And I think it's been brought to uh, everyone's attention by the good work that's, that's been going on in the impact investing and impact space. There seems to be quite a bit of innovation going on within the impact investment field, particularly when it comes to new investment structures. And I know you have been working and developed a new investment structure that demand dividend. Can you tell me about this? Yes. So um, thank you for asking that. Um, let me reach back and to something that you just said as well. One of the, the very encouraging signs that I see is, is the... I won't call it an explosion, that might be hyperbole, but but certainly an increased pace of young, talented entrepreneurs, and even some not so young, talented entrepreneurs, uh, who are uh, boldly going forward and starting a company. I mean, I, I think that there has never been such an interest in entrepreneurship globally than there is today. and And part of that is because uh, maybe a demographic, uh, maybe a preparation within the higher level, you know, higher uh, institutions of learning. Um, but I think it's also easier to start a company these days than it ever has been um, because of uh, the, you know, the free flow in, of information, the ability to get advice or resources globally. Whereas 20 years ago, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have Skype, you didn't, you know, all of these sorts of uh, connective tissue that, you know, virtually did not exist. Now, you know, whole, you know, how to do manuals, uh, basic books, uh, YouTube uh, explanations, you know, there's, it's, it's so much more approachable and sparks the imagination of so many entrepreneurs and, and gives them the courage to, to go forward. So I, I think that that's, that's one attribute that, uh, that we can smile about and, and part of why we're called the Miller Center for social entrepreneurship, you know, this is what we concentrate on, and, and we happen to enjoy, a, you know, a place and a time in Silicon Valley where you know this is a hub of innovation, and this is a hub of of startup financing, and this is a hub of entrepreneurship. Um, it doesn't always apply what we do here to you know far flung areas of the world, but uh, in many cases there are various you know starting a company is starting a company, and the basic business is the basic business. It needs local context, but but we think it's. It's really a, an encouraging sign. Then on top of that, 
we think, um, and, and we've been pioneering here, but we're not the only ones. Uh, there are others. Fledge up in Seattle has a form of, of revenue share, um, a very clever note uh, that they put in, in their financing. Um, uh, ours is the demand dividend, which is more legally correct to call it a variable payment obligation. And it is more appropriate to the actual situation of a social enterprise in country than, say, an equity investment might be. Equity is still, you know, I've made a lot of money with equity in my career, and it's a wonderful tool and very efficient, but it's not always the best or appropriate tool because you, you can't get it out in some of these situations. You can't get your, your money back and unless you saddle the company with debt and do an LBO or MBO. So I think that some of these um, structured exit financings are, in fact, a way of both reducing risk, and I was speaking about this uh, at the Journal of Investment Management in Chicago uh, a week ago, uh, and it is a way of um, encouraging the right kind of uh, focus on cash flow and sustainability that these companies r really need to concentrate on in order to become, as we said earlier, persistent. So uh, the demand dividend, just to, to maybe give you a, a little bit of a uh, background on it, it is, it is concentrated on putting an investment in it has equity-like terms. It uh, contemplates a honeymoon period, so that, like equity, the capital, the investment capital can go to work. It is most appropriate for enterprises uh, that have unmet demand and with an investment can meet that demand and maybe double or even triple their cash velocity in, you know, within a 12-month period. Uh, and with that, they are then able to pay back as a percentage of a minority percentage of free cash flow, they're able to pay back um, the note, you know, on a quarterly calculation. It can be variable. There's no payment penalty. There's no minimum amount that they have to pay. Um, and uh, when the principal and interest are paid back, there is also something called a total obligation, which is essentially the risk premium. So the issuer of this financing, just like the issuer of equity, uh, can decide, look, I, I want to have a 2x return or I want to, you know, if, if the company meets its plan, I'll end up with uh, an IRR of 14% or 18%, whatever they feel is appropriate, not only for the business, but for their own investment philosophy and policies. And, and so it's tunable, if you will. And in the end, the entrepreneur and the investor shake hands and the entrepreneur completely keeps his company. Uh, which has been part of the problem in social enterprises, because when you invest in enterprises that are being formed in other cultures and far-flung areas of the world, they don't have the same um, intention to why they start the company as you might find in a startup in Silicon Valley, high-tech startup in Silicon Valley. Their intention is generational ownership as opposed to flip it. So there's, there's also this sensitivity, I would say, almost cultural sensitivity to why do companies get started? Who starts them? And is it really more their role in that community than it is something as a get-rich um, uh, plan? So uh, I see the social enterprises being started for some of the social and environmental reasons more so than um, a way to become filthy rich. And, and I think that that's, there's, that's why it's inspiring. Right. 
Great. So, so let's say a, a social entrepreneur uh, has one of these uh, $300,000 or something provided on, a, let's say, this demand dividend. Um, and they, uh, this money's provided to them. A year later, 18 months later, they're able to pay it back, uh, presumably with uh, some kind of interest payment. What happens after that in terms of... Uh, so, so, so all of that money is paid back presumably to the investor and what then has the entrepreneur what commitments do they have uh, financially with the investor so the commitment would be in in the case of a demand dividend or variable payment obligation the commitment would be that they need to repay with call it 25 to 30% of the free cash flow. So after they've taken in revenue, after they've covered their costs of goods sold, after they've paid for their expenses, um, before they've paid their taxes, <laughs> um, they, they have an obligation to repay from a percentage, calculated as a percentage of the quarterly free cash flow. And there's seasonality in there too. I mean, many part of the reason for the variability is that many of these economies, even if the enterprise isn't an agricultural concern, many of these economies are agrarian economies, agrarian-led economies, and so the rhythm of cash in and cash out is much slower than monthly. Uh, so it's quarterly or seasonal, if you can think of it that way. And so some quarters there will be more revenue and, and free cash flow, and some quarters they might not have so much revenue and, and no free cash flow. Um, so, so you have to have a, a financing mechanism that accommodates this rhythm of, of the market. But when they have the cash, they, they owe a, a certain percentage. That is generally based on a forecast that is agreed upon between investor and entrepreneur prior to the financing. And then, uh, and then it is paid off, not in 18 months, it's paid off beginning in 12 months. So there's a honeymoon period. And then they start to pay it back on a quarterly calculation. It may take them four or five years. Um, but it's, it's like a self-liquidating or redeemable uh, equity, per, you know, investment where the company buys back on a formulaic, uh, in a formulaic way. In fact, the, the variable payment obligation there, we formed one version, which is an equity wrapper around basically the same mechanism. The whole point is that the there's there's a there's a certain forgiveness, not of the obligation, but in the timing of the repayment based on the the operational performance of the company. That's the same thing that's true in an equity situation where there's a certain forgiveness, uh, again, not in the obligation of what they want to have happen, but sometimes the company realizes you know, high growth quickly and sometimes it realizes high growth only after its second or third product. So it, it's not unusual in the venture industry to, to have to have some patience. So what we see is that with these these structured exits that we aren't trying to claim uh, an ownership uh, of the company. We're trying to claim a chunk of their cash flow uh, over time. That is not an onerous responsibility or cause them to take money out of their bank account when they don't have it. And that tends to be safer for the entrepreneur in order to run their businesses. Now, some people will say, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult because you've got to really audit the numbers or you've got to be careful they don't have two sets of books or what does cash flow really mean? I, I think it's no different than taking a chunk of revenue as well. The only difference between 
cash flow feeding it and revenue feeding it is that when you have revenue, you don't necessarily have um, retained earnings and it, you run the risk of, of actually taking money away from the company when they have none. Right, right. Yeah. And how, how, how popular is this or how, how many deals have you done like this? Is this something that's growing in uh, demand? Yeah, so it's interesting. It's, it's popular amongst people who understand the problem uh, from the funding standpoint uh, and becoming more popular. I can give you some examples at a moment. It's also very popular amongst the entrepreneurs because up to this point, the entrepreneurs have been raising money you know, from people who want to invest equity, but they know that they don't want to keep the promise of equity, which is essentially to either to sell their company or go public, and they know that going public is not usually in the cards. So you know, they're, they're concerned that they've got to put all the sweat and, and good intention into building this company, and then they have to turn around and, and sell it off to somebody, and, and that's not really why they started the company. So in, in a way, it's a false promise to begin with. So the entrepreneurs see structured exits as a solution, and very, a very welcomed solution to this. Um, you know, there, there's there's some, like I said, it's not for everybody. Uh, it's for companies that, in fact, can can meet unmet demand and, and generate a, a, a quick increase in, in cash velocity in their businesses uh, rather than somebody who's a startup who doesn't have – hasn't gone into the market yet and needs a lot of time to bring product to market and, and to create an operation. So it's not for everybody, but I think that for the people it's for, it's it's a very welcome sign. From, a, from the investor standpoint, there are whole funds – um, that are being contemplated that they will only use or majorly use uh, a structured exit financing as the investment mechanism uh, and not just individual investors. But we've seen, we've seen a lot of these now start to be talked about. So GDF Suez, they have, uh, I forget their, their foundation name, but they did a couple of these financings in Mexico, as did uh, Promotor Social, which is um, the uh, spin-out arm of the Compartamos. It's the foundation that was spun out of the Compartamos um, uh, IPO. Uh, and, uh, you know, KL Felicitas did, uh, did an equity wrapper for PBK Waste Management, which is essentially the same mechanism, except it's, a re- it's in the redemption clause of the equity that they purchased. Uh, and that is performing. And Maya Mountain, Elio's Foundation put a special purpose vehicle for Maya Mountain. It's now called, uh, oh boy, Uncommon Cocoa. <laughs> They've changed the name. Um, and that got rolled into an, a later equity round uh, with a with 100% of the anticipated return being bolted into the equity conversion. So, so these are, are good ways for entrepreneurs to get started. And, uh, and you know, it's early days. It's still experimental. Um, it has some complexity, but I think the more we use it, the more these will get polished down into something that's very usable and just like equity, uh, you know, a well-worn path uh, where where people understand the ins and outs and, and why they would use it. Right, right. That's fascinating, John. Uh, lots of innovation here. Well, I'd like to wish you the very best success with the work you're doing. And thank you so much for taking the time today to speak to Financing Social Entrepreneurs. Well, thank you as well. And I'm very pleased to be counted amongst the very talented uh, previous guests that you've had on your podcast. And good luck with it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Echoing Green. 
Echoing Green drives social progress further, faster, via its Global Social Entrepreneurship Fellowship, now running for 30 years. Echoing Green's new Impact Investing Program aims to bridge the gap between impact investors and social entrepreneurs to help build more resilient and financially stronger social impact businesses. You can find out more at echoinggreen.org. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.